Welcome to Ojibwe Stories Gaganunidida, a program of Ojibwe culture. Our guest on this program is Michelle Hakala Bietzma, who has worked for the 1854 Treaty Authority for the past 16 years. She is also the Vice President of the St. Louis County Historical Society's Board of Governors, a member of the Society's American History Advisory Committee, and a member of the Grand Portage Band of Chippewa. She joins us today to talk about the precedents and the groundbreaking history of the Treaty of 1854 and why this enduring treaty still matters today. Thank you very much for being here today. The Treaty of 1854, what created the need for the treaty to be written in the first place? Well, there's a lot of history kind of uh, leading up to that. Um, even going back to the you know the early 1800s, 1823, and then maybe even further back to that when our nation was first founded, and we that's when they're trying to establish their status as a sovereign nation. So the U.S. was like, yes, we are a sovereign nation. The other nations were like, no, you're just kind of this upstart. You might have won the war, but you know we aren't recognizing you yet. So they're like, well, we're we are a nation. We're going to make treaties with the native nations. Britain and Spain, they weren't necessarily recognizing the U.S., even mm-hmm. though we had our constitution. They're like, oh, that's nice, but you aren't really. <laughs> <laughs> even though Britain had surrendered to us, they still hadn't quite uh, well, given, quite it up. given us that, uh, right. that status yet. Hmm. Treaties with sovereign nations in the North American continent, each different band were they treated as different nations? How did the U.S. government decide to recognize what a different group of Native Americans? was. Well, and that was getting a little complicated, and I guess even the, the funnier part was they were trying to gain control of this big land mass. You had the kind of the original colonial eastern seaboard era, then you had that kind of line where they went off into the territories. So then you've got like the Louisiana Purchase, right. where they're trying to, you know, get France out, gain control of that. I guess the, the part I find ironic about that is that they paid France for land that was actually owned by Native Americans. And then they had to go in and make treaties with the Native Americans who were actually on the land. Mm-hmm. Had France made treaties with Native American populations in that region before? They weren't making treaties, but it was kind of a political and an economic relationship because we had all those French fur traders. So mm-hmm. it was kind of the right to be in the territory and to trade with the Native Americans. Right. Now, by the 1850s, those 13 colonies had spread a little further west, to say the least. Is that the reason it took this long for a, a treaty of that sort to come about for the Ojibwe nation, or was it? Yeah, in, in our neck of the woods, it's the Ojibwe, but of course, all across the country, they're making treaties at different times with different tribes, with the Iroquois and with the Cherokee. Mm. And so it's about the mid-1850s when they're kind of getting into our area. Mm-hmm. Now, a couple of significant time frames that I kind of point out is 1823, the U.S. Supreme Court made a decision stating that Natives can occupy land but not hold title to it. Huh. So that kind of set the precedence for the United States to be able to come in and do the takeover. Right. In our area, you know, we had uh, the Fox, the Sioux, the Dakota, the Chippewa, and we were all kind of occupying different little pockets. But of course, as uh, Native peoples, we had no titles or had never written anything down. It was just sort of a traditional understood thing. Well, in 1835, the government came in and said, well, if we're going to start making these treaties, first we have to find out who owns what plot of land, who, who controls what area. So that 35 treaty, they came in and they got 
the Dakota and the Chippewa and the Fox and the Cree and everybody to decide, okay, this is our traditional lands, and they kind of outlined it and described it as best they could with rivers and, and natural waypoints. So that established the ownership for the tribes. So now the government's going to come in and start making treaties and saying, okay, you own this piece of land, so now we're negotiate with you. What were they negotiating for? For access? For rights to take materials? Yeah, in their their ultimate goal was to take the land. And uh, two of the bigger treaties in our area were the uh, 1837, which they call the, the White Pine Treaty. And when they were negotiating, you know, from the Native point of view, their understanding was that they were going to be able to occupy the land, still hunt, fish, and gather on the land. They would not be removed from their land. But the government just wanted to come in and take the pine, use the timber, hmm. and to set up small little settlements here and there, mining towns and trade towns. But, of course, when they wrote it down on paper, it was actually seeding the land. Now, the interpreters obviously weren't letting the Native peoples know that that's what they were signing. And then kind of the same deal with the 1842, which was also signed out on LaPointe, Wisconsin, and that was called the Copper Treaty. And that was related to the mineral rights. They came in and said, well, we just want to mine the minerals out. We're not going to take your land. You can stay here. But, of course, when they, the treaty was written and it was signed, it actually ceded the land. Hmm. So how soon was it before the natives realized that they'd been had? Was it pretty quickly? Were they... It was uh, pretty quickly, yeah. Uh, right around uh, 1849, I think it was uh, Zachary Taylor's president, he signs a removal order okay. trying to remove the Indians okay. from, from their lands. So that was coming out through the, the Indian agents, and they're telling them, you have to move on. And that kind of led into the Sandy Lake tragedy. 1850, they moved the place of the annuity payments. So with the 37 and the 42, they were getting payments with those treaties, and they'd always been made at LaPointe, Wisconsin. And that was kind of the head of Ojibwe country then. So in order to try to get them to move, they moved it to Sandy Lake, Minnesota, and said, you have to go there. Take your women and children. If you don't go there, you won't get any money. And they do this kind of in fall, October, November, telling them they have to go. And, of course, this is a trip they have to make on foot. As winter's coming in. As winter's coming in. So that was kind of the thinking, I think, is to get them over into Minnesota. Winter will come. They'll have to stay. Maybe they'll just stay there and not go back. So, of course, along the way, they're, uh, you know, it's getting colder, and they're kind of losing some of their weaker people, some of the elders. And But when they finally get to Sandy Lake... The payments aren't there. They aren't ready for them. They have. They don't have the provisions. They don't have the money. They tell them, oh, you know, just stay here. And we've got word that it's in St. Paul. It's going to be brought up to us. And, you know, so while they're there, they're in this fort area. They have provisions there that are wet and moldy. People are getting sick. There's uh, an outbreak of measles. So people are, are children, everybody is getting sick and they're dying, they're losing more people. Mm. Eventually they tell them that there was a fire down in St. Paul and that all the provisions were lost and all the money was lost and you're, you're just not going to get anything. So 
they actually went down there to check it out because even if the provisions had been burned, the money would not have burned the metal coins. Mm -hmm. So they went and they dug through the ashes and they found very little coinage there. So as we approach 1854 treaty at this point, they've learned a lot from they, the, They've learned a lot. Yeah. And uh, right around this point, a gentleman named Benjamin Armstrong comes into the picture. And he's a trader. He's originally from Alabama. He's not native, but he'd left a home when he was like 10 years old and kind of hit out on his own and ended up in our neck of the woods here to be a trader and try to make his fortune. That was kind of a big industry back then was mm -hmm. to trade with the Indians because they knew they got those annuity payments. But he was actually a man of very good character, and uh, he becomes friends with Chief Buffalo. He eventually becomes adopted by Chief Buffalo, and uh, he works as an interpreter for them. So after the Sandy Lake tragedy, the headman and Chief Buffalo, they decide, you know, this has to stop. We don't want to be removed. We don't want them changing our, our place of annuity payments. You know, we lost 400 people in, in that Sandy Lake tragedy time. So they decide they're going to go out to Washington, D.C. to talk to the president to see if they can get him to rescind the removal order and to put the payments back to LaPointe. Making that journey to Washington, D.C., is that unprecedented, or is that... It, it actually was, and it was there being a little, uh, I guess what we'll call disobedient, because at the time, they actually were supposed to have permission from their local U.S. Indian agent to leave their territory and to go to Washington, D.C. Hmm. So they get this group together, and Benjamin Armstrong there, and Chief Buffalo is there. He's 94 years old. They start out in a 24-foot canoe, and they paddle along. They had gone to the Indian agent, their local, and had been refused, but they decided they were going anyway. First, they stop off in uh, Sault Ste. Marie, and as they're going, uh, Benjamin Armstrong has a document that uh, is explaining what had happened, what their wishes were, why they were making the trip. It also states that they want to stay, that the natives want to stay in their territory. Mm. And he's gathering signatures from businessmen and the local, the important people in each area as they go. As they go. So they move on to Detroit, Buffalo, New York. That was the first time any of them had ever seen a, uh, a railroad car, a, a train. Mm. They, they get on this train. They make it to New York, and by the time they get to New York, they are out of money, flat broke. So the, Ben Armstrong, he's kind of advocating for him. He's the only one who speaks English, you know, and he finds this hotel and he has some, some of the more important people that he's met along the way have given him letters of introduction with different people. So he gets this hotel proprietor to uh, agree to let them stay and that he's got this scheme that he's going to raise the money and I'll, I promise I'll pay you. So he actually, uh, I'm going to say, puts the Indians on display, on exhibition. And people come to the hotel and to the lobby to see the natives. And they're talking to them and they're explaining their cause and their people are making donations. And I suppose from today's perspective, you think, well, that's sort of disrespectful. And it probably was. But, you know, from a native point of view, I think the natives even today would kind of chuckle at that. That. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here we are. You know, you want to give me money to look at me? Fine. You know, yeah. it's, it's for a good cause. He talks to a, a stockbroker there that he has letters of introduction from somebody else. He makes a donation. The stockbroker actually arranges for uh, them to go to a private party 
with the kind of the socialites of New York. And they go off to this dinner party. The uh, guests there are very, they're, they're actually very respectful and they want to talk to them and what their life is like and their habits. And they tell them, you know, just be yourselves. Don't worry about, you know, trying to be very social or proper. You know, they're in this big fancy house. And so they actually ended up raising money to continue on their trip. And kind of all along the way, they're, they're running into Indian agents that are saying, you know, do you have permission from your local? And they're like, no, we didn't. But, you know, this is our trip and this is way too important. And if you don't let us, Ben Armstrong's basically arguing with him that if you don't let us go, I can't vouch for the safety of the white settlers out in that territory because they are that upset. There's some very young warriors that are really ready to go to war over this. Did the signatures of people, business people along the way that you talked about, did that help pave the way? Sort of say, well, look, all these other people in the towns and the cities that we've met have yep, sort of vouched they're, for they're, us. They're showing them that. And actually, when they finally get in to see the president, he actually knows some of those names. And that actually carries some weight with him. So they get to Washington, D.C., and they're at a hotel. And, you know, of course, the natives don't want to go and... Stay, they want to stay on the first floor. They don't want to be too high up because that's just, you know, too different from what they're used to. So he uh, puts them in a, you know, a couple of rooms on the first floor. And Armstrong goes off to talk to the Department of Interior, try to get the meeting set up. And he gets turned down again. It's, you know, do you have the permission of your local agent? You really should have done that. You know, and he just gets a runaround from different people. And he's kind of dejected and leaves and takes a walk and goes back to the hotel and chief buffalo is sitting out in the lobby and they're trying to talk to him of course but he doesn't speak english and they're trying to make each other known finally ben comes in and the interpreter's here and they finally talk and you know a lot of people are like why are you putting him stuff you know stuffing him off in that room bring him out into the dining room so they bring them out in the dining room to have dinner and some people come over, some men come over and sit down and talk to them, you know, why are you here? And, you know, he induces them as the leader of the Chippewa Nation. And ben didn't really kind of get their names or who they were. He thought maybe they were reporters or something, so he wasn't being too forthcoming with them. And finally they introduced themselves. And one's a senator from New York, Senator Briggs, and one's a cabinet official. So... Briggs, actually, after hearing their story and all the background, says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to help you make this meeting happen. So they go and they set up the meeting with President Fillmore. So hmm. they actually get in to see him. So the meeting with President Fillmore, did that open the door to the negotiations? Because this treaty wasn't signed in Washington, was it? Was it signed nope. back in? and this is still like 1851, 1852. Okay. So they meet with him. They actually have a pipe ceremony with him. And Senator Briggs is there, and they get the president to agree to rescind the removal order. And he gives them a document stating that they will not be removed from their lands. And that kind of opens the negotiation, because the other thing he promises them is that they will then come out and make a treaty with them to kind of solidify all this other stuff, because they're talking about their hunting and fishing rights. And, and I think kind of unbeknownst to them, the natives had it in their mind that they wanted parts of the land set aside for them. And that's kind of how the reservations got set up. Hmm. So finally, they came out in July of 1854. So there was a couple of months of negotiations before it was actually signed. Hmm. And when they, the negotiators get out there, the natives have already spent time discussing about what they want. Chief Nagadab 
from Fond du Lac is there and he makes kind of a very impassioned speech at one point saying we will not sign it unless our interpreter reads it and everything we want is in there and it's true to what we're talking about mm -hmm. because too many times before we've been deceived. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of signatories on this treaty. Was this because of different disparate groups in the, in the Ojibwe Nation, the Chippewa, that each well, wanted to make sure that their voice was heard from different bands? Part of the, the treaty sets out kind of northeastern Minnesota as part of the land cessation. Mm -hmm. So that kind of just deals with a part of Minnesota. But the other big thing it does is it sets up those reservations, and it sets them up from all of those other tribes that are signing the document, all through Wisconsin, some into Michigan, into Minnesota. Right. So that's why you have so many of them there interested, because okay. they're there to get their parcel of land set aside for them. So this includes Fond du Lac, includes... Fond du Lac, Boyce Fort kind of did got their Lake Vermilion area, they weren't quite set on what area they want for Boys Fort, so that happened a few years later. Grand Portage, La Couture, Bad River, okay. Red Cliff. So far, we've got the, the two main points, as I understand them, are one, defining where the lands are that they want to have held for them. Two, some hunting and fishing rights as well. Mm -hmm. Are there other main points of the treaty? Well, at the time, different tribes made put little things in different. I'm from Grand Portage. And, uh, you know, one of the things we had put in there is that we wanted, uh, you know, a blacksmith in a school setup. And all of them had, you know, like uh, different durable goods, you know, guns and cloth and all that kind of stuff in there. Mm. And then there was actually monetary payments there, the annuity payments. One of the big things that came out of this treaty as well was uh, Ada Coons, who's from Grand Portage, makes a very impassioned statement that uh, the money be given to the chiefs and the people so that they can then pay their debts with the traders. Previously, the traders could go to the government agent and say, I'm owed this much, and get their money off the top. No, just skip over the... Skip over the native person. Mm. And a lot of times they were overinflating it, trying to get more money. And it, it was kind of a very paternalistic way of doing it, you know, not trusting the natives to pay their just debt. So he makes a very impassioned speech about, I know what I owe, I am an honest man, I will pay my own debts. In terms of trees at the time, was this fairly unique? Was it groundbreaking? It was unique. Um, I think in that, you know, it was something that had been instigated on the part of the native peoples, where we had a, a good interpreter and we were negotiating for the good of our people. Mm -hmm. You know, without the reservations being set up and that guarantee of being able to stay on our lands, with the removal order being out there and the troops moving in, in other parts of the country, tribes were just wiped out. Yeah. Just, you know, physically, but also culturally as well. Right. The age of the treaty, 164 years since 1854. Are there other treaties that have lasted this long? Are there other treaties that have been, that were established then that no longer exist? All treaties are still in full force. They're okay. a government-to-government relationship. Yep. Only an act of the federal government of Congress can rescind them. Um, whether they're honored or not, or that's always been a point of contention, and we've had to litigate over the years through the court system to reestablish that they are still in force. Tell me then about the 1854 Treaty Authority, which you're a part of. Is this an authority that has been in place since the treaty signing, or is this created more recently in order to help govern the terms of the treaty? Yeah, we're a more recent uh, as an organization. Back in 1988, 
there was an agreement made with the state of Minnesota, an out-of-court agreement. Now, all along there had been, uh, especially out in the Pacific Northwest, cases going through the court system on a local level, a state level, but also through the Supreme Court, upholding treaty rights and testing to see whether they were still in force. So based on that, the state of Minnesota, we just entered into a memorandum of agreement, kind of an out-of-court settlement. And that established our organization. Part of what the court agreements were upholding was not only the rights to hunt and fish and gather, but also to be co-managers of the resources. So that's what our organization does. We're a resource management agency. We've also agreed to set seasons and limits for our band members. Mm -hmm. So we actually set those and implement those. So the authority wasn't founded until the 1980s. That's over a century of this treaty being in existence. How was it governed? How was it enforced? How was it honored? How were conflicts resolved prior to that day? Early on, everyone remembered the treaties and things are working well. Eventually, as the states are formed, the states try to assert their authority over Native people, saying that their fishing laws, their laws are going to supersede that treaty. And then they would actually fine them for exercising their treaty rights. No kidding. For many, many years, yes. Now, it's a federal treaty, and the states are trying to essentially step beyond the federal agreement that was made. Absolutely. Was the federal government not there to step in and say, ah, you can't do that? Right. They, you know, they weren't really backing things up. And, and you think about the way that would happen is to do it through the court system. Mm. And the tribes, you know, through the Depression era, you know, weren't particularly organized. You know, we just didn't have the knowledge or the money to bring these cases through. Yeah. And that's actually how all of them kind of ended up being reasserted is somebody would get ticketed. And then that's when the tribe would step in and say, all right, we're going to push this through and get a ruling on it. Did that happen a lot? I mean, how often were there conflicts that had to really be addressed? The conflicts, people being ticketed, happened on a, on a regular basis. Okay. So people were basically down to staying on reservation or going out under cover of night or, you know, sort of dodging the game wardens or mm -hmm. however they could do that. Was the establishment of the Treaty Authority in the 1980s in part to help create a board that could help address and move these concerns forward to the U.S. government? Or is it there more to manage the resources in each region? So our purpose is we don't have to uh, deal with those kind of conflicts anymore. Usually we have to uh, keep the state people re-educated and educated on treaty rights and how mm. all that works. You know, they get new officers all the time and this stuff isn't taught in school, so. And then we have our own conservation officers. So they, they work together. They are fully licensed peace officers, so they're actually licensed by the state of Minnesota. They mm. can write Minnesota tickets as well. Okay. Um, so a big part is just regulating our own band members, but probably the bigger focus of our agency now is managing the resources, especially like wild rice and working together, working on fisheries and wolf projects and wolf habitats, sturgeon habitat, moose counts. Okay. The hunting and fishing rights and rice gathering rights, are they limited to the reservation territory itself? Right. A lot of people thought it just applied to on-reservation, but the rights were retained within the entire territory. So if you're talking about the 54 territory, 
you know, that's uh, down a little bit into Pine County, all the way up to International Falls and over to Grand Portage. So as long as it's public land within that region. Within that region, you can hunt, fish, and gather. The timeline for Minnesota residents, when you can start to fish, when you can hunt, are the timelines within the treaty, are they a broader timeline? Is it relatively the same dates? Is it... uh... You know, the dates are relatively the same. Okay. We actually follow pretty closely, you know, I mean, our hunting season probably lasts a little longer for deer, um, but that's about it. You know, our seasons, you know, the limits are, you know, we usually say that they're roughly twice of what a state hunter angler could do. Mm-hmm. Has the role of the authority since it was founded in the 80s changed a bit, or is the purpose of the authority still relatively the same? I think when it started, it was probably more on the uh, licensing and the seasons and limits. We've always had sort of a natural resource management portion but you know especially recently that's really been expanding and growing we were actually the uh, lead agency in uh, working with wild rice and documenting lakes that had wild rice and kind of working on the effects of what things affect wild rice Mm. the state it was just like well it's there you know and they kind of had a season or that was out there but they weren't really managing or enforcing any of it or Mm -hmm. really involved with it too much how is the authority able to address other sources that are affecting your hunting and fishing safety, um, the efficacy, the keeping the numbers healthy, all of those things? When it's private business, you have to deal with the state or federal government. Are you able to address those concerns? Is there any way to mitigate or stave off further damage to the region? That's a tricky question because there's a lot of agencies out there. The state likes to assert its authority, of course, and all of our resource management employees and executive director, they serve on a lot of advisory committees. We're always looking to partner with other state and private agencies and other tribal agencies, you know, trying to band together, talking about it so that we're all kind of on the page, the same page of what we're doing. Because mm-hmm. it's really a lot of the same issues that we're dealing sure. with. We're always pushing for more tribal input, and that's always kind of a challenge. You know, sometimes, yeah, they kind of forget to invite us to the table. But usually when we hear about it, and it's like, you know, we really should be there, you know. Yeah. You know, like any agreement, any contract, it's only as good as the, the two sides that agree to uphold it. And the U.S. government could decide to modify the terms. Has has there been any discussion on the Ojibwe Chippewa side to improve or change or modify the agreement in any way? You know, the discussion usually doesn't come from our end too much, except that uh, a lot of people try to say we should, especially in the non-Native community, say, well, they're old, we should just get rid of the treaties. Hmm. Which I think is kind of interesting because... The big thing the treaty did was to cede the land to the U.S. government. So what would be the plan? Would they give the land back? So I think that's the sticking point there. It's like, how are, you know, how could the U.S. government modify it? Are you are you going to suddenly leave and give it back to us? Right. A lot of natives are like, okay, we'll take that deal. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like there's a lack of understanding or lack, lack of education right. about really what the terms are and what, it, what the implications would be for any modification. Yeah. Hmm. I, don't, I think the big... Thing that uh, people don't realize is that treaties gave the non-native community the privilege and right to live on these lands. And if you take away the treaty, that's got to go too. So what's the future? Are there new concerns that you're starting to notice that the treaty is facing that it, it didn't see before? 
You know, I think a big thing that we're as an agency, but also a Native community is because treaty rights are so ingrained in our culture and to the health of our people. A lot of people don't understand that this is the way we pass on our values. This is the way we teach our spirituality. So it's kind of that aspect that's kind of the new wave here. For us, it isn't sport fishing. It isn't sport hunt kind of a thing. There's actually a spiritual aspect to it. And we're, we're just getting back to that now. For a long time, we, you know, because of uh, pressures from the outside world and actual laws prohibiting us from performing our religion and our ceremonies, that was just rescinded in the 1970s, that we've been able to regain that and take those back. It's been a tough road. Yeah. Yeah. And we're constantly working to educate adult natives, but, you know, children as well, because a lot of that was lost. That's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Michelle Hakala-Bixma, for talking with us about the interesting history of the 1854 treaty and why it still matters today. Hakala-Bixma is also the vice president of the St. Louis County Historical Society's Board of Governors, a member of the Society's American Indian Advisory Committee, and a member of the Grand Portage Band of Chippewa. To listen again to past episodes of Ojibwe Stories, click on the Programs tab at kmd.org. Ojibwe Stories Gaganuni Dada is produced at KUMD with funding provided in part by the Minnesota Indian Affairs Council and by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Hey, 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 hey.